I've got good news for you. Got a lot of good news for you. Jesus is in charge. And He changes everything. I'm going to say that a lot today. Jesus is in charge and He changes everything. As we approach verses 12 through 25 today. Oh, next week we're doing verses 26 through 42. Write that down in your worship guide and check it out before we get together on Sunday. But before we read verses 12 through 25, I want to just share a couple things with you real quick. Number one, it's Thursday. We've had 11 or 12 weeks where it's been Tuesday. Jesus dies on Friday. So this is the last week of his life. Tuesday was a very busy day. Mark shares a lot with us about what happened on Tuesday. Nobody really knows what he did on Wednesday. We think he probably took a nap and <laughs> recovered a little bit from Tuesday. And uh, thir- Thursday uh, begins here in chapter 14. The, other, the second thing before we begin reading is that last week we saw that Judas, who was one of the twelve, had decided that he wanted to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. And the religious leaders were ready to kill him. They had met together and they were trying to figure out how they could quickly get rid of him. And Judas had went to them and he had partnered with them and they had paid him money to betray Jesus into their hands. And so this week we're going to see a little we're going to see a little bit more of that play out over the next 2 or 3 weeks. So let's read together verses 12 through 25 and then we'll begin our discussion. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?" And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, "Go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is in charge and He changes everything. What I want you to do is take a few minutes, 
read this passage over to yourself once or twice or three times and uh, ask yourself these questions. What does this passage say? What do these things mean? How do I obey or how should I respond? And then fourthly, is there any good news that I can share from this passage with somebody else? So ask yourself those questions and after a few minutes, the table leader will begin your discussion. God's story, Passover. So part of God's story is about Passover, and it goes like this. It all started when the Israelites were stuck as slaves in Egypt. They were forced to work in fields and make breaks and mortar. Worse, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, and the other people in charge didn't care if God's family was hot or tired or hungry or sad or hurt or just plain miserable. And they were. But even in the middle of all that, God's family grew. In fact, they got so big that Pharaoh was scared they might attack and overpower him. He made them work even harder to show them he was boss. Soon the Israelites were even more miserable. They begged God for help. Well, guess what? God saw what Pharaoh was doing to his family, and he didn't like it one bit. So he planned a rescue. He sent a man named Moses to lead God's family out of Egypt and into a brand new, beautiful home called the Promised Land. But when Moses told Pharaoh to let God's family leave, Pharaoh said no. Remember, Pharaoh thought he was the boss. The thing is, God is really in control, and even rulers of countries should obey him. So nine different times, God sent plagues to show Pharaoh his power. The plagues were like punishments to Egypt for keeping God's family as slaves. After each one, Moses asked Pharaoh to let God's family go, but Pharaoh kept saying no. Then Moses told Pharaoh that God loves his family so much that he will rescue them no matter how many times Pharaoh refused to obey. So there would be one more plague, one that would wipe out the oldest son in every house in Egypt. But of course, God had a special plan for his family. He told them to take their best lamb or young goat, kill it, and paint the blood on the door frame. Then they should eat the meat with bitter herbs and some flat bread made without yeast called unleavened bread, which is cheap and can be made quickly. In fact, God asked his family to eat the whole meal as if they were ready to run right out the door with their shoes on and their walking sticks in hand. They obeyed. Good thing, too, because that very night, the angel of death came. But just like God promised, he passed over the houses with blood on the door. Finally, Pharaoh realized God was in charge and that God loved his family and that Pharaoh couldn't stop God's rescue plan. He said God's family should get far away from Egypt. They left in a hurry. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after that, God's family celebrated the night God rescued them by eating unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and lamb. But that rescue was just a preview to the big rescue God had planned for the whole world. Remember, the ruler of this world, the devil, wants us to work for him and live bitter, sad lives, separated from God. And we all do wrong things sometimes and deserve to die as punishment. So God sent his very own son to earth. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, and died the awful death we should have died. But three days after he died, Jesus came back to life. That means he got rid of death, and it can't separate us from God anymore. And you know what? Right before Jesus died, he celebrated Passover one last time, but without the lamb. See, Jesus showed us that he is our lamb. And just like the lambs died so that the sons could stay with their families, Jesus died so that we could be part of God's family. One day he'll recreate a perfect home for us, and it'll be even better than promising. And that's the story of Passover. So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. God's family was miserable. 
They begged God for help. God planned a rescue. Pharaoh said no. God showed his power. The oldest sons had to die. Lambs took their place. God rescued his family. They celebrated Passover. Death was our punishment too. God sent his son. He took our place. God rescued us. And that's a part of God's story. I showed you a video two weeks ago and I showed you this one for the same reason. They summarized it all and said it a lot better and a lot clearer than I could. For our text today, um, I want us to, to dive in. We see that God is in charge and we see that He changes everything. It's beautiful. The, this first paragraph we have, we obviously get the setting. It's Passover. We've already heard about that. And Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead and he says, go into the city, you're going to find a man with a jar of water. And when you find him, follow him into the house. And when you go into the house, find the master of the house and tell him. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. I love this. We see the sovereignty of God in this. Jesus has a plan, and he tells his followers, hey, go and do this. And it works out just the way that Jesus has planned it. We see that he's in charge. We see that he's in control. We see that he has it all figured out. And verse 16 says what should not surprise us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And there they prepared the Passover. Jesus is in charge. We see his sovereignty. We see how much he knows. He, he knows it all and he can ordain and bring things about to accomplish his purposes in our lives. When we get to verse 17, we see God's sovereignty even more clearly. It was evening. He goes with the twelve. They're eating the Passover feast, just like we saw in the little quick video. And he says that he drops a bomb on them. And he says, one of you are going to betray me. And at this moment, they become sorrowful. And he tells them it's going to be one of the twelve. And he's had these twelve people with him for almost three years. They've seen him do all kinds of incredible things. They've had great days and great times with him. And then they've had other times that were hard. And they've stood amazed at Jesus. And then at other times they've been confused and they don't know what he says. And sometimes they say something stupid. And Jesus rebukes them. And then they realize how wrong they were. But yet Jesus doesn't give up on them. They see Jesus doing good and teaching things that no one has ever taught. And here he says, one of you, one out of these twelve, you're going to betray me. And they become sorrowful. And they start to ask, is it me? Is it me? And Jesus cuts right to the chase. It's the one who's dipping bread in, into the dish with me. There were a few different dishes where they could dip their bread into. Much like we would dip a chip. And at that moment, Jesus had his hand his bread in the dish 
and Judas, Mark doesn't record this, but the other gospel writers do, but Judas has his hand in there. And Jesus says with very strong words, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus is the Son of Man. It's what he often calls himself. And he says to them, I am going down just like it has been written of me. Well, when he says it has been written of me, what's he referring to? Well, primarily, I believe he's referring to what has been recorded in the Jewish scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament prophesies of a Messiah, of a Savior, of an anointed one, of one who would be sent by God to come and save and deliver the people from their sin. And Jesus knows the Scriptures better than anybody else. And He's saying to them, I am going down just like it has been foretold. We see that Jesus is in charge. And while He's in charge of this situation, He is fully submitted to the plan of God. He knows the plan of God. It's been written down. He knows what it is that God wants Him to do. And the difference between Jesus and us is that every time Jesus knows exactly what God wants him to do, he does it. And this is where we fall short. But because of Jesus' perfect obedience, he became the perfect lamb. He became the perfect sacrifice. He could... Once and for all, suffer and die and put an end to the entire Jewish sacrificial system. Through his death, through his perfect sacrifice, he was able to bring an end to the old covenant, which had not worked very well, and to begin a new covenant, which we'll look at a bit more in a few minutes. Him being... The perfect sacrifice, him being a human, fully and completely human, just like we are. When he laid down his life, there was no longer a need for another sacrifice. But he starts the new covenant. And we see that Jesus is fully submitted to the plan of God. For he says in verse 21... That I am going down as it is written of me. We get to verse 22. And in this he changes everything. We've seen how he's in charge. And he chooses freely to submit to the plan of God. So he's in charge. And because he's in charge, he changes. Well, he doesn't really change it. But in a sense he does. He changes The most important festival for the Jewish people. For about 1,500 years, they've been doing this thing called Passover. When God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, it was such an important moment. God didn't want them to forget it. So he said, every day or every year on this day of this month, I want you to have Passover. And Jesus had been celebrating this his entire life. Well, this night he's in charge of Passover. He's the leader at the table. And he does something incredibly different. He says, this is my body. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. 
Verse 22 begins with a command. And, you know, there's a few commands in this passage, but I think the only one that applies to us is what we see at the beginning of verse 22. And that is, take. He says, take. This is my body. See, you can have food piled up in front of you, and it can be delicious, but if you don't take it and receive it and put it in your body, if you don't consume it, will it nourish you? Will it benefit you? It might smell good. But will there be any benefit beyond that at all? There are some religious groups out there. My aunt was a part of one group for many years. And when they gathered to celebrate, they passed the bread and they passed the cup around, but nobody could have any. Because you weren't worthy. You had to be worthy before you could take it. It makes me wonder about these 12. Were they worthy? See, the command is to take. The command is to receive. The command is to put it inside of you. Acknowledging that I need this. See, I think the whole point, that whole idea we can't do this because we're not worthy. I think that's the whole point. We know we're not worthy, but we know that He is, and we're taking of Him who is worthy. We're saying we can't do it. This is the good news. Every one of us in this room is screwed it up, but Jesus is saying, here, take me. Take me. I'm yours, and I'm giving myself freely. All you got to do is reach out and grab. Yeah. All you got to do is receive. All you got to do is believe in me, acknowledging that I'm there, and acknowledging that I am for you. That I'm for Connie, that I'm for Courtney, that I'm for Evangeline, that I'm for Hunter. I am for you. Jesus is saying there's good news. He is for you and you aren't worthy, but you are able, because of His grace, to receive of Him. And we, and, and, I mean, we do this every week. Okay, I, Most churches don't do that. That's still kind of strange sometimes, isn't it? We do this every week to acknowledge our dependence upon Him. We do this every week for a hundred different reasons, and I'm going to give you one or two. Just know we could be here a lot longer today than what we are. But we do this every day because Jesus says, Take. And we believe that at this table, God shows Himself in a special way. We think worship is just what we do in our heart. But no, worship is physical. Worship involves stuff. Worship involves actions and things you can see. And when that bread is broken apart and you see it, and you're like, oh yeah, that happened to Jesus' body, and you do this in remembrance of Him, does something happen inside when you believe that? Amen. See, I think the more I see it, the easier it is to believe Right? We, we, we do have to believe without seeing sometimes. Amen. I think that that's a huge part of our lives. There's a lot that we can't see that we're called to believe in. But we get to see this. So I want to see it as often as I can. Amen. And most of the time I break it, but I really like watching y'all break it. When somebody other than me does it, I like seeing it. And I like doing it. I like obeying Jesus. And, command, and, and obeying this command. Every time we take of this, we're saying 
that this is the real food I need. This is Jesus' unconditional commitment to me. And I receive it. So verse 22, he says, this is my body. Verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He is saying, this is me. See, they got this whole idea about the Exodus and the Passover and God delivering them from Egypt and slavery. And and all that's good and that was God's plan for them, but he's changing the plan. Maybe a better way of saying it than he's changing the plan is that he's showing them, he's taking them further into the plan. Because all that stuff that happened in Egypt, all that judgment of God killing the firstborn, all that salvation and him saving his people, those that had the blood on their doorposts, all that stuff just points to Jesus, that he is our savior, that he is our salvation. He is saying, you guys think this is all about Egypt? Well, it is, but even more so, this is me. This bread, this is me, he's saying. This blood, this is me. This is my blood. This is me. I want to know how they felt about this. I wish I could interview them. How did you feel that night that Jesus changed everything? I want to know. How did they feel? The truth is, throughout his ministry, he'd been dropping hints about this stuff. If you look at John chapter 6, which is the first sermon I ever preached here as pastor was John 6. But in John 6... I'll read a few things for you real quick. He tells them, this was right around the time that he fed the 4,000 or the 5,000. He says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who came down from God to give life to the world? Talk to him. Jesus. Okay, so who's the bread of God? Okay, this is not a new idea. All right? Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Somehow the bread of God, which is Jesus, causes you to not die. I don't want to die. I'm going to die physically, but I'm not going to die spiritually. It's because I've consumed, I've taken in the bread of God. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give... For the life of the world is my flesh. He is already telling them a couple years before he went to the cross. He's saying, I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the entire world. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.55, he says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him and I in him. I think he's pointing forward to this. I think he's telling the people that, that in, in a way that we can understand, and I'm so grateful for this, because I know what it's like to eat and enjoy food. We all do it just about every day. But I need bread. And I need wine. I need juice. These things sustain me. For them in their day, wine was something they had every single day, and it was life-giving. It met some dietary needs that... that they couldn't have met any other way. And there were drunks back then, but the wine that Jesus speaks of and participates of is not like going to the liquor store. It was alcoholic. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. 
But when Jesus has wine in mind, he's not thinking about the liquor store that we can easily think about today. And so he's saying, this is me. This bread, this cup, this is me. Verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. What is a covenant? And the covenant is poured out, or the blood is poured out for many. But what is covenant? We're going to be learning a lot about covenant in the months to come as we begin to lay out a plan for church membership and as we covenant together as a church family. But a covenant is a relational term. It has to do with a binding or a bond where we tie ourselves to one another. Okay, It's very much the idea of church family, and that's a term I use often here, and I'm going to continue to use it more and more because it captures the heart of what God wants to do here. But a family is bound together in, 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 by law, by blood, and this covenant has to do with how Jesus is binding himself to you. Did you hear that? Amen. Jesus is buying, has bound himself. If you've trusted him for salvation, he has bound himself to you. Tell you what, when Jesus ties a knot, is it easy to untie that thing? Is it possible? No. Is Jesus, has Jesus been near to your life, near to you, and he's not today? Have you walked away from God? He didn't walk away from you. Amen. He's faithful. And he loves you. And he knows everything you've done. He knows all your failure. He knows your shame. He knows your guilt. He knows everything about your life. And he understands what's going on in your life more than you do. But he is in covenant with you. If you have believed on him for salvation in the past, he has not left you. Amen. This idea of covenant is huge throughout the scripture. We even see elements of a covenant in the Garden of Eden between God and Adam and Eve. So this idea of covenant... Um, is important. See, the Jewish people were under what we would call the Old Covenant. And it's at this point in history, this Last Supper on Thursday night before Jesus died, that we really see a vision for the New Covenant. Everyone say, New Covenant. It is not the Old Covenant. Well, about 600 years before this happened, a man named Jeremiah, the prophet of God, he prophesied of something better. Of a better covenant coming. In Jeremiah 31, this is verse, chapter 31, verse 31. Everyone say Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. That's easy to remember. <laughs> it's very, I love it when God makes it simple for us. That's easy to remember. But in Jeremiah 31, 31, he prophesies about this covenant. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's saying there was an old covenant. Well, I'm going to do a new one, he says. Verse 32, it is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. We've seen husband and wife imagery between God and his people. Thank the prophet of Hosea that we went through a few years ago here. But he is saying clearly that this new covenant, as he holds up the cup, This new covenant isn't like the old one. It's different. And the author of Hebrews argues persuasively that this new covenant is so much better than the old one. 
We are so blessed to live in the day that we live in. But he's saying that the new covenant is not like the covenant I made with their fathers when they came out of Egypt that they broke. See, the problem with the first covenant is that we kept screwing it up. God didn't. But we kept screwing it up. Tim Chester writes this. He says, at Sinai, which is where the Ten Commandments came, at Sinai, God promised to be Israel's God if Israel would be his people. But Israel broke the covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus represents both God and humanity. See, the old covenant didn't work because we wouldn't keep it. So in the new covenant, God was faithful just like he was in the old. But in the new one, he does our part for us. That's good news. Because if he doesn't do it for me, I have no hope. This is good news. He, he is in charge and he's changing everything. This Passover meal had always been about the old covenant. Well, now this Passover meal becomes a picture of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, he continues in verse 33. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them. That law is not just going to be in a box in the Holy of Holies. That law is inside of us. He, he goes on to say, I will write it on their hearts. Don't you know what's right and wrong already? Don't you know it? Don't people that have never been to church know it? See, I think God's already puts a lot of this stuff inside us. And so he says to them, I will write it on their hearts. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Tim Chester continues to say this. The old covenant, God had to do his part and we had to do our part. And we didn't do our part in the old covenant. In the new covenant, God does his part and he comes and does our part for us because we are unable to. Now let me say this, the difference between the covenants also. And this is important. Do you remember, we learned about this earlier this year. They made this tabernacle, and then they made this temple, and this is where God dwelled. And they had something called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a rectangular box made of wood overlaid with gold. And there was something called the mercy seat on top of it. It was like a lid. And inside there were a few things, including the Ten Commandments, the, the two stone tablets. And those things were placed inside, and this was called the Ark of the Covenant. Well, in Jewish worship before Jesus came, the high priest, who was the leader of the spiritual life of the nation, he could go into this room called the Holy of Holies, and he would offer incense and sacrifice, blood sacrifice. He would sprinkle blood on this Ark of the Covenant. He would only get to do this once a year. Okay, So they got to see the physical representation of the covenant once a year. And wait, they didn't get to see it. One guy got to see it. Well, what about everybody else? Well, you know what? All of God's people get to see this every time we gather. Do you see how much better the old covenant is than the new? That this is so accessible to us? That the blood of the covenant, it's not just something you look at, but it's something you drink. There's something special about that. You know, we think it's cool that God dwelled in the tabernacle and in the temple, but do you realize that God dwells within you now? This new covenant is far superior to the old covenant. 
And it just shows how much God wants to be with us in our mess. Is your life a mess? Yes. God wants to be with you in it. He comes to us in our mess. He comes to us in our mess. I've been a mess lately. I get like this sometimes right before we have the baby. I get stressed out. I get worried. I'm like, man, I'm not going to sleep the next three months. And we got a sick dog that's been in the room. I had not slept the past month. I mean, it's getting started early this time. I'm a mess. I'm stressed out. There's things we got to do. My attitude has been awful. Just ask my kids. And I, and I go and I read the Word of God. And I think about how big of a mess I am. And God says, I love you, my child. Amen. He says, I am for you and I am not against you. And He says to me, that I can overcome anything because He is a part of my life. And I know when I look at how I've acted this week, and any week for that matter, at least at some point, that I would have not held up my end of the bargain under the Old Covenant. But I know in the New Covenant that Jesus has done it for me. And because He's done it for me, I love Him. And I keep coming back to Him, even when I've run away. This is good news, church. He... He has done it for us. Let me wrap up. Let's go to verse 25. And this this has been a... I've wondered about this one for years. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, talking about the wine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God has been a big part of Jesus' teaching. We saw in Mark chapter 1, he says uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is one of the most basic yet complex and central ideas in all of Jesus' teaching. You can't understand the Bible without the idea of the kingdom of God. Most of the time we think the kingdom of God is some future reality that has nothing to do with the present. But what we've seen in Mark is that it has a lot to do with the here and now. It has a lot to do with Jesus' life then. But I believe in verse 25 he's talking about the future aspect. Of the kingdom. Most of the time he's talking about the present. But I believe in this verse he's talking what we're going to see at the end. And he's talking about a feast. And he's talking about wine. And he's talking about celebrating. And in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 14, people ask Jesus about eating with him. Aren't we going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is it they, they knew there was some expectation of a meal and of a celebration in the future. And Jesus even one time referred to my banquet. He said, my banquet. Well, here he changes the Passover to what we call the Lord's Supper, and then he starts talking about the future. And this week I, I, I came across these verses in Isaiah that I want to share with you, and they're beautiful. Isaiah lived, I, I don't know, 700, 750 years before Jesus lived. And Isaiah writes this. This is Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was here. And he says, There's going to be a feast of rich food full of marrow, of of well-aged wine. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And look at what he says is going to happen around this feast. 
He's going to swallow up, I'm sorry, he's going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is the covering cast over all the peoples? It's death. In verse 8, he says, he will swallow up death forever. Isaiah says that this feast, he's going to wipe away tears from their face. Do you have tears? This woman who visited us earlier, whose husband's sick, she's had tears. And I've got tears too, but they're nothing like hers. But her tears, my tears, your tears, our tears, he's going to wipe them away at this feast. He's going to take away the reproach of his people. It will be said on that day, Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. I like that Advent idea. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah is, is talking about the same, time, same thing that we see in Revelation chapter 19 at the very end. We call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19.9, the angel says to John, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Are you coming to the supper? This, while it reminds us of the past and while we take it in the future, it points... I'm sorry, while, while it reminds us of the past and we take it in the present, it points to an even better meal. And it's a meal that you are invited to. And you can receive this, you can be at this party, you can be at this wedding supper of the Lamb by believing in Jesus. Do you believe? Do you believe enough to say, yes, Lord, I receive the gift of salvation? Do you believe that He came because he loved you. Do you believe that he died on the cross and death couldn't hold him so three days later he rose again? It's true. I want you to believe in this. This Lord, this Jesus, this wonderful God. He came for you. He is inviting you to the table. And he is inviting you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's going to be beautiful. Don't miss it. Let's pray.